Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and not joining me today is my friend, my colleague, my co-worker, my neighbor, Mr. Mark Daly. And it's not because this is a part of our interview series, but rather because Mr. Daly is enjoying a one podcast ban administered by the FIA because he was caught speeding in the pit lane. So don't tune out, don't pause or press pause on your podcast app because we have an incredibly special co-host today. Joining us once again is Elizabeth Blackstock. If you don't remember, Elizabeth is a lifelong motorsports fan and professional journalist whose work can be seen in Jalopnik, Race Weekend, Front Stretch, The Drive, and many other publications. Plus, and this is what I'm most excited about, Elizabeth is also co-authoring the eagerly anticipated book, Racing with Rich Energy, how a rogue sponsor took Formula One for a ride. Now, having said all of that, Elizabeth, how are you? Thanks for joining us today. Hello, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me again. It is it's nice to be back as a as a co-host and not a, a guest. So that I've upgraded. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've had this date circled on the calendar for a few months because Daily cautiously explained there's a couple of dates this summer that I'm not going to be here. And to be fair, this is actually the first weekly no sh- or knows the first weekly news show that Daily has missed in the six and a half years that this podcast is going. So I'm not suggesting wow. you've got big shoes to fill, but I think collectively we have big <laughs> shoes to fill. So since we last yes. talked, we got this. A lot of stuff has happened. You know, the season is now seven races in. I think the last time we talked, the season was just getting underway. The IndyCar season is underway. We've seen some great developments on the track, some great developments off the track. But I think perhaps the biggest happening, the biggest event of the Formula One season so far has been Miami. And Miami is something that's been teased for years and years and years. It went off. It looked like it was a sensational event. You were there in person, partly as a fan, but partly as credentialed media. You got to experience it firsthand. How was it compared to maybe some of the other F1 races or motorsports events that you've attended in the past? It was a very like high-end spectacle. I think that was the best way to put it. Um, I've been to Coda, I've been to Montreal, I've been to Austria, and I've been to Silverstone for Formula One. And those all felt like very traditional motorsport events where people were fans and they were there to watch the race. Uh, And this kind of sounds strange, but Miami was almost kind of cosplaying Monaco, but doing it in a very American way. Um, (laughs) They were trying really hard to kind of be a party and more, more party, less a race. 
Um, so that was that was primarily uh, the impression that I got. I had a great time while I was there, um, but it was also very strange because it was the first time that I actually felt a little isolated because it was, you know, less that my knowledge was important about motorsport and more that my, you know, the celebrity spotting and, you know, financial flexing was a little bit more important at this event. So it was very, it was very interesting place to be. Uh, and it was, it, it was good for people watching. I didn't know most of the celebrities, but <laughs> it was, it was still fun. I, I love the fact that you kind of make that reference to Montreal and, and Coda and Silverstone as places you go to watch a Grand Prix and to be surrounded by like-minded people. The sense that I got from afar, and I think you're confirming this, but the sense that I got from afar was a lot of people were going, not necessarily to watch the race, but to be seen maybe, and also to see, and like you said, celebrity spot other people or be there for the party, which is totally okay. It's not a criticism of the race, but you're right. This seems to be more in line with what we've historically expected from Monaco than maybe a Formula One Grand Prix. And that's the interesting thing is that Monaco has kind of a racing pedigree. So that was a very, you know, there's so much history in Monaco that it, even if there are a lot of celebrities there, they're still very entrenched um, understanding that this is hollowed ground for the motorsport world. Whereas with Miami, it was just kind of like they plunked a race circuit down um, in, in a city and hoped for the best. Uh, and it, it, you know, it worked out well. It was a lot of fun, but I was I was there at a Red Bull press trip, um, not to go to the race, but to go to parties after the race, um, which in and of itself was wild because I was the only person on that trip who knew what Formula One was beyond just a kind of an understanding that drive to survive is a thing that exists. Um, so I was getting up early and going to the racetrack and everyone else was like staying out until <laughs> four in the morning. And sleeping until noon, and I was like, I have places, like, I'm here to work, <laughs> I have places to be. Um, so it was very, it was really strange, because it was like, these people, there's a reason why Red Bull is here, and that's because there's a race happening. But to be in the same city, to have so much going on, and that there's, like, this big disconnect that they had no clue what actually was going on was it was really it was surreal it was a very surreal experience when you got to the racetrack each day especially on friday saturday sunday what was the atmosphere like at the track did you have the opportunity to walk amongst the fans in the general admission section or uh look at the racetrack from the grandstands what was the atmosphere once you'd kind of separated yourself from the press corps when you got it out of the paddock once you got amongst the fans what was the energy like and the atmosphere like there it was there was still a lot of hardcore fans um as you would expect that there to be but there because the pricing of those tickets were so high i feel like it kind of priced out a lot of people who might have just gone to enjoy a race. Um, and then you had people there who were, you know, there to enjoy a race, but they're there because they own a Ferrari and they're there because they own a McLaren. So they have, you know, they have these totally different perspectives about what it is to be a race fan, uh, which was, it was really interesting. Like you go to Coda and there's, it's, you know, it's not a super cheap race, but the people who are there have spent the money because they want to be there. Um, and because it's, you know, you have to like make a little trek out of Austin to get to this hill in the middle of middle of nowhere in Texas, uh, to be baked in the sun for a couple hours, you have to have some level of, you know, interest. Uh, and it was, it was just really interesting that there was, it, it felt like there, it was, it was designed more for kind of a, a different scene. So more of the elite crowd, 
um, who maybe is not the most hardcore fan of Formula One, but is still following it because, you know, they want to see how Ferrari does because they have an invested interest in Ferrari or because they have, you know, an Aston Martin and they want to see how things go. You wrote a piece for Jalopnik entitled Miami Grand Prix, a poor kid's perspective on Formula One's indulgence. And there's a a couple of paragraphs here I, I want to quickly read because these resonated with me in a really meaningful way. But it reads, it sounds, it sounds silly just or it sounds silly to just now have some sort of existential crisis about F1's exclusivity. After years of following and covering the sport, the Miami GP wasn't the first time I'd attended a race on someone else's dimes via price trip. It wasn't the first time I'd worked in an F1 media center. It wasn't the first time I'd failed to recognize a celebrity. It wasn't even the first time I'd been treated to hotels and dinners far swankier than anything I'd ever spend money on myself. But for some reason, this race is the one that got me. I was invited as a guest of Red Bull, the culture arm, not the racing division experience a little taste of the off-track nightlife so it was technically less a press trip to a race than it was a trip to a hosting city and despite the fact that i was still up early working at the track each and every day there was something about the whole going out to a nice party thing that got me when i read this article it it took me back to my childhood a little bit you know my, my parents worked eternally hard, 60, 78 hours every week. We hardly ever saw them. Uh, and we, we enjoyed the simple things in life. And the idea of ever going to a Grand Prix was something that just wouldn't ever be accessible to us as a family. And, you know, my parents did have a couple of wealthier family or wealthier family friends that were probably more upper middle class than anything. But as a kid, when we were around them, as nice as they were, there was always this sense of discomfort and, and awkwardness, just knowing that they lived an entirely different life and they live an entirely different world. And when I was reading this article, one, not only did it resonate because I was able to connect with you on that that emotional level, but also I could imagine being in that that environment in a sea of people that live just a very different world world than than we do what, what what triggered this what what was the emotion that brought this out of you because i thought it was a fantastic piece there was there was a lot that kind of went into it where there was all these external factors as well of i was trying to get a promotion at my job working really hard um and it just wasn't happening just because we've had a lot of new hires and new management coming in and out so there was a sense of like this is my time to really prove myself but there was also this sense of um, you know, going out with people I'd never met before who I have nothing in common with trying to connect to people on that Red Bull trip. Um, and I was like, I don't know anything about dance music. I don't know anything about celebrities. Like I have not seen recent TV shows. You know, I, I live firmly in like the music of the seventies and eighties and like, that's it. That's my thing. Um, <laughs> you know, just that stuff and these emotional, the inability to connect to people, I think was really, the difficult part um, and just feeling like I was a little bit out of place in this very nice city. Um, and, you know, also being a spectacle because I was driving a Corvette to the track every day. And it was, you know, most people who were parking there were like in Chrysler Pacificas and like, you know, the rental cars you get from the airport. So there was just so much that was kind of contributing where it was like, I just feel kind of, it made me very aware of the fact that I was not, of the same level as a lot of these people um, and, you know, prepping for the event, getting dressed, trying to pick out outfits. I was like, I have nothing here. That's like not from target or from Amazon. Um, there were so many people where it was like, 
the makeup they had on or the nails that they had had done were more expensive than everything on my person. And that's including my backpack with my MacBook in it. Like, you know, the, it was just, it brought back a lot of those, like, oh, I'm not of this kind of group. You know, most of the time, even if it's someone who's a little bit wealthier, um, there's that motorsport connection where you can just, you know, cross boundaries with that. I've hung out with people in Austria. We didn't speak the same language, but we somehow got along because there was, you know, that thread that connected us. And that just wasn't here um, in Miami in a lot of ways. There were just so many people that I was around that had totally different goals, totally different perspectives, and a totally different upbringing. Uh, and it was it was a little unsettling, honestly. Um, I keep coming back to isolating. That's kind of how it felt. Was I was in my own little bubble doing my own little thing. And everyone else was out there doing their thing. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who's felt this way. Um, but it was kind of the first time I'd been to a race where the racing wasn't the important part. Uh, and that's the thing that usually grounds me in these events. So it was it was really strange to be, it was like a fish out of water, I think. That was the best way to describe it. It makes me it makes me think about my personal experience with F1 and you know like you we we live in North America and historically F1 hasn't dominated hasn't dominated the press it's not a part of the fabric of social kind of pop culture and when you go to an F1 historic or an F1 race historically you're you're finally surrounded by like-minded people like you found your own community in a lot of ways so when you say it's unsettling i i get that because you go to an F1 race expecting that experience that maybe you've had at Coda or Silverstone or Austria and then it's actually the exact opposite as people that aren't grounded or connected to the motorsports community and furthermore aren't even there necessarily for the race. So yeah, again, this piece, I highly recommend everyone take a peek at it, but it resonated with me on a very personal level. And I thought it was really, really great that you made yourself so vulnerable in this piece and it was so easy to connect with you on a personal level. So, so well done. That, that said, you've been there, you've experienced it. Do you think what you saw is sustainable, especially with Las Vegas joining the calendar next year that, you know, any race organizer can go all in and make a big splash one year and have a big sensational event with tons of stuff happening away from the track, fan festivals, all that kind of stuff. But do you think what you saw is sustainable two, three, five, ten 10 years from now? I think Miami has a 10 year contract. Can we see this level of success every year? I don't think so. And I think that's that was the thing I was kind of struggling with was that this felt very much like a one-off. This was like, we put all of our time and effort into this one thing because this is, you know, this will be the only time we'll, we'll come here. This will be the only time we do this. Um, and it just, it, it just doesn't seem like we'll be able to bring people back every year. I don't know that the drive to survive hype that is sustaining this will continue to, you know, plateau at this level, I think we'll see a little bit of a decline as people, you know, naturally move on, find interests in other things. It's just the way that culture goes. Um, it's really, it's hard to see people wanting to continue to pay those really high prices for everything, whether that's, you know, the food at the track, the tickets to get there, the lodging around the track was expensive. Um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to see. I wouldn't, at the same time, Formula One has surprised me in America in a lot of ways recently. Um, so I, at this, if it suddenly, you know, next year is even bigger and better, I wouldn't totally be shocked. Um, but it, it just feels, it feels weird. I think especially with Vegas, there's going to be a different race that kind of takes on that almost 
campy Americana. Uh, and people want the Vegas aspect, I think, a little bit more than the Florida aspect. Um, at least I know I do. <laughs> so we'll have to see. I'm kind of hoping... Like, I'm not going to complain about three races in America. I will go to all of them every year if I can. Um, but it's a lot. It's a lot. You make a really great point about the fact that it was almost set up and sensationalized as a one-off. Kind of like a Super Bowl, right? That you're, you're Miami, you're, you're New Orleans, you're in a big event city, but you're not hosting the Super Bowl every single year. And it's almost like it was treated like a Super Bowl. But hey, guess what, guys? This is coming back next May and the May after and the May after. And maybe maybe they adjust and, and they recognize that, hey, we're not going to bring in the celebrity crowd every year. And we've got to taper down our expectations on ticket prices to appeal to a broader audience. But likewise, to your other point, next year, they're going to be competing head to head with Vegas within the same 12-month calendar. Maybe they have to step up their game to give re people the reason to come to Miami. Yeah, and that's the thing is like, what more can you do? Like how much, how, how bigger do you get? It's, it's hard to imagine. Oh my goodness. So having talked a little bit about everything that happened off of the track, what were your impressions of what happened on the track? We, we know it was a, a hybrid circuit in the sense that really it was, I guess you could technically define it as a hybrid or a street circuit, but to me it was more of a confined, dedicated circuit because they weren't using a lot of public roads here, but it was very, very tight. There wasn't the traditional runoff areas. There was a lot of concrete barriers, a lot of tech bro. How was the racing from your vantage point? I thought the racing was honestly pretty good. Um, I had kind of a bird's eye view almost. Um, I was watching from like the top of the Hard Rock Stadium. So I got to like look down at the track, which was really, really cool. So you got to see this really unique perspective of, you know, watching people coming into the corners, seeing who is going to overtake and being able to kind of learn the distance that it was going to take. Um, I like street circuits. I know they're not the best for Formula One cars, but it is just fascinating to see them on such close confines, especially when you're, you know, you're. No I'm used to Coda. I go every year. I live in Texas. Like you have to, but there's so much open space and there's so many places for runoff. And then, you know, t Miami was just like the complete opposite um, and I thought that was like, I thought it was neat. I'm not going to complain. I think there are, there's room to make the track more exciting to improve upon certain areas that were a little bit difficult for drivers or that just ended up being kind of boring. Um, it is not a permanent circuit. So you can, they, you know, they have the freedom to make those tweaks and stuff in the next, in the next couple of years, um, which I think is the nicest part about it. You know, they're not set in this, like we permanently built this in this exact fashion. It always has to be this way. Um, so I think that, you know, that's probably going to be where we see Miami shine is if they're able to say, here's all the stuff we learned from, you know, the fact that people couldn't make passes or the fact that people were crashing too much in certain spots. And then here's how we've tweaked it to make it better, different, more interesting. That's one of the things that's actually impressed me a lot about Formula One the last couple of years is you've seen race organizers react to feedback about their tracks. We saw it at Yoss where they smoothed out a couple of corners, and I didn't expect they would do that because I didn't know what financial motivation they would have to invest in the track, and they did it. We saw a significant investment and reconfiguration in Australia. So you're right. Again, if they want to be competitive and they want to create a compelling product, then obviously they can adjust the track. And to your point, it's a temporary track, so they've got the flexibility if they want to invest that money to do it. Elizabeth, was this the first time that you had seen the new cars in person? Oh God. Yeah, it was. It was. That was like, I, oh, they're gorgeous. They're so nice to see them in person. 
Like they're just, <laughs> I can't describe it. it. They're like softer almost. Like I, I described them as like the stuffed animal version of last year's cars <laughs> where they're like so much more rounded and like smoother. Uh, it, it, they just, they're gorgeous on the track. Like I, you know, the marshals there like wouldn't let you stand on those, the bridge overpasses over the track. But I was like, this is just where I want to be. Like I want to just watch them go by me at speed because they're, oh, they're just, they're beautiful. They're so nice. They're just so, I don't know. I love a good car refresh. And this one was a good one. I think we saw a lot of really fun things that manufacturers did with the cars to make them very distinct and very different. And as we get into next year, I'm sure they're going to look a lot more samey like they had in the past. Uh, once you get those like initial kinks out of the rule book, you figure out what what teams actually did it right. Everyone tries to copy them. So it's kind of, it was nice to be like at that first beginning part of the first season of a new car. Um, because I'm always at Coda. I'm always at the tail end of these things. So it was fun. It was just so much fun. It was, it was refreshing. Like it was just nice to see Formula One cars that look different again. And this, this definitely isn't a unique take because I'm lifting it directly out of a Sky Sports broadcast that I saw. But isn't it? If isn't it almost difficult to go back and look at a car from 2021 or 2020? Now they they seem to have aged overnight, especially when you can do that A B comparison between the new 2022 cars. It's so weird. Like I feel like this happens all the time, especially especially with IndyCar where you look at the previous IndyCar and the current one and it's like oh how did we even look at that um now it's the same thing now with Formula One where it's you're looking at 2021 and it's like oof, that's that's you know that's a chunky car like that's that, that doesn't even look aerodynamically friendly at all <laughs> <laughs> so true Let's take a quick break. We've got to pay some bills. When we get back, I want to run through a quick couple of quick laundry items. And then I want to talk to you about India. And I know this is a Formula One show, but we're trying to broaden our own personal horizons and those of our listeners as well by talking about more types or other disciplines of open wheel racing. But let's take a quick break, pay those proverbial bills, and we'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. If you are just joining us, I'm Mark Hamilton, and joining me today is somebody other than Mr. Mark Daly. We've got a very special co-host joining us, Elizabeth Blackstock. Thank you so much for joining us. We were just talking about Elizabeth's experiences a couple of, well, I was going to say a couple of months ago, but I guess it's really just a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, at the inaugural Miami Grand Prix Welcome back. We have a couple of laundry items before we get to the next topic. First of all, I wanted to uh, do a quick F1 fantasy update. We didn't do it on the Sunday show. We paired up with Tim Haraney from TSN and did our recap of Monaco, so we didn't have the opportunity, but I'll quickly run through the top 10. Sitting number one of our 2,030 entries, number one, Thaddeus F from the UK with 1,624 points. Number two from the US, Hannibal M, 1,620 points. Number three, making big strides, Christopher N with 1,590 points. Number four, Cameron N with 1,582 points. Number five, Scuderia K's, Roland K from the USA, 1,581 points. Number six, Bradley P, 1,567 points. Number seven, Aziz H from the UK, 1,557 points. Number eight, Matthew B, 1,555 points, just a shade behind Aziz. Number nine, Jeff D from the UK, 1,552. And rounding out the top 10 is Herbert D with 1,544 points. And if you are interested, I am currently sitting 236th. I am not going to be winning a prize. And I can unofficially announce the prizes. So we are going to award the top three finishers this year, some combination of prizes that will include a subscription to Race Weekend Magazine, a copy of some unique one-off Formula One artwork and finally a third prize which is going to be a book collection three f1 books which are going to be announced later but again we've promised we've committed that there'll be prizes we'll hopefully wrap a bow on the final details next week but just know there's something coming so elizabeth with all of that said i'm hoping that we can slide rotate the slide the back end of this podcast into a corner and pivot to indie so you had the experience the opportunity to attend the miami grand prix now flipping over to indie you just came off of a fantastic weekend at the indy 500 in the racing i would say the racing capital maybe of the united states in indiana how was that experience? And maybe speak generally for a Formula One audience. Talk about this in the lens that an, an F1 fan might understand. It. I was actually just talking to Marcus Erickson, who won the Indy 500. Uh, and I was like, for people who have no idea what IndyCar is and they don't watch it, how would you describe it? And he basically said it's, you know, America does things. They really like their one-off events, which was part of why Miami made sense in that that context of F1, where it was, you know, we like our very big spectacles. So the Indy 500 is kind of our Super Bowl of the IndyCar season. It arguably is more important than the championship itself. Um, you'd Most drivers would rather win the Indy 500 than they would the whole entire championship. Uh, and that's because the Indy 500 has gone for 106 runnings now. Um, so there's a, a massive history and a massive amount of tradition behind this race. Um, and a lot of it that we carry forward today where, you know, Monaco has a very deep history. Well, 24 hours of Le Mans has a very deep history, but there's a distinction between history and now we, <laughs> I say we, Indy, <laughs> IndyCar brings those traditions forward. So everyone in the, the victory circle drinks milk because one guy did in 1936 
Uh, we kiss the bricks every year because someone did in the eighties. Um, you know, it's, it's so much fun. It is an oval. And if you've never watched an oval, I promise you they're very exciting. There's a lot more that goes into it than just turning left. Um, it's, it's, there's so much strategy, so much fun. Um, and I had an absolute blast at the 500. It's like my, it's my favorite event every year. So it was so nice to be back. What an incredible race weekend. So not only do we have, and again, you know what, take Monaco for whatever it, for what it is, but it's still a Formula One race with a beautiful backdrop. So on the same race day, we had Monaco this year and we had the Indy 500. We know Adam Stern, I think, posted that Monaco got a 0.76 rating and 1.4 million viewers. That's up significantly from last year. The TV ratings, unfortunately, for the Indy 500 were down a little bit, but it's understood that's because the broadcast was moved from NBC to Peacock, so behind a bit of a paywall, but the numbers were still strong. But the crowd... I feel like, knock on wood, we're kind of moving a little bit post-COVID now up here in Canada, finally. But it looked like that race could have been 2015, 2010, 2005. How was the atmosphere? What was the crowd like for this? It was packed. Um, I, like, I've been to quite a few racing events since COVID has started. And this was the one that really felt kind of back to normal in a lot of ways. There were just people everywhere. There were so many fans. Everyone was packed into the grandstands for better or for worse. I know a lot of people who got COVID after the weekend. Um, so they're, they're all doing fine, but thankfully, knock on wood, so far I've been okay. Um, but yeah, it, it's just, it was nice to kind of be back. Um, Every year I meet my friends in the Pagoda Plaza, just behind the Pagoda uh, and the infield, and we all drink beer at like nine in the morning. Um, it was nice to like see people I hadn't seen in forever and to watch the track wake up and to watch every all the fans filter in and everyone in their like obnoxious American <laughs> flag outfits. Uh, it was oh, it was nice. It was just nice. It felt it felt like this is how racing used to be before COVID. And it was, you know it's COVID still a thing and a lot of people realize that after this weekend but it it was nice to have those memories I think that's that's amazing I love the fact as well that you kind of opened this conversation by casually mentioning as I was talking or when I was talking to Marcus Erickson who of course won the Indy 500 on Sunday yes. <laughs> you remind me of one of uh, the regulars on our show Tim Haraney and he'll always casually drop you know I was talking to Total Wolf last night or this morning when I was talking to Lewis so there's definitely a little bit of <laughs> Tim Haraney vibe with you I love it but talk about that so Marcus Erickson, he migrated over to Indy from Formula One. He, he, I think he must have spent four or five years in Indy 500. Of course, he raced with Sauber, finished his uh, Formula One career with Sauber a couple of years ago. He's been much more successful in Indy than he ever was in Formula One, just suggesting that those skills that you develop in Formula One are very much transferable. How was he? Was he excited? Uh, how was he after the, the big win? He he was still very, I think, in disbelief. Um, so after you win the Indy 500, you are immediately shipped off for like five hours of media stuff. Then you like go do your after party. And then at seven in the morning, you're back at the racetrack for photos. Then you get in an airplane and you go to New York City and, you know, you open NASDAQ, you throw a pitch at the Yankees game like you're. So when I talked to him yesterday, he was like, I've been in my apartment for the first time since the race ended. And this, I haven't even gotten back an hour ago. So he still seemed a little bit in disbelief. Um, and he wasn't, you know, as, as you are, you're not quite sure what this race is going to do for your career. Um, it has been known, winning the Indy 500 has been known to be a very big boost um, to everyone's career because you are now basically 
part of history and part of this very longstanding hundred year tradition of this specific event. So I think it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun to see how this goes for him, you know, to go from being a pay driver in Formula One, unfortunately to have to say that, um, to being, you know, a backmarker rear of the field to being competitive in IndyCar, but not quite, you know, the skills aren't one-to-one. They're both open wheel, but IndyCar is physically a little bit more difficult because it's heavier, a little bit less aerodynamic, and there's no power steering. So it requires a lot more brute force. Uh, and then also learning how to do ovals. It's a whole new skill for a lot of these drivers, including Ericsson. Um, I think we're going to see his career do a nice little jump. Um, he had no merch for sale at the race, so it was very funny, you know, to see you know this is going to change. Like, you know this is going to be so different now. Um, you know, I get, like, a little emotional about it because it's it's so nice to, like, be a part of that, to be able to see how that is, you know, it's going to be a 180 for him, and it's it's really fun to see it. You touched on something a couple of minutes ago that that triggered something in my, my memory that last week I was talking to one of our listeners, Marshall, and one of the things that he and I have been trying to collaborate on is a spaces chat about Indy because our audience is principally Formula One, and it could be very much an introductory conversation or like Indy 101. And he made a point that never clicked with me, and it was that we need to do this before the Indy 500 because if you do it after the Indy 500, so much of the interest in, in India and the United States just drops off. Is that true that a lot of the interest in India just builds and builds and builds until the Indy 500 and it just drops off? That, that's unfortunately not wrong. Um, IndyCar has had a very tumultuous history in the United States. American Open Wheel has gone through three different fract- fracturing events where it's split into different parts um, since, you know, it started back in the 1900s and we're still kind of riding that that wave of recovery since they reunited in 2008 um so there is like i said there is so much more value placed in winning the 500 than in the championship as a whole so beyond this point you get the very dedicated indycar fans um who are staying in touch and watching how this plays out but for a lot of people the interest largely begins and ends with the 500. Like we, I was at the airport with my husband and you could really tell based on the conversations around us who was an IndyCar fan and who was an Indy 500 fan. Um, so there, there are a lot of just plain old 500 fans, which is, it is what it is. I think IndyCar is working on it and it, it's still worth it. It's still worth it to tune in. Like they're going to Detroit this weekend. They're immediately going from an oval to the most difficult street circuit on the track and this uh, calendar like it just it keeps getting better it's gonna be so good i promise <laughs> and that was gonna be my next question is obviously you are on the pulse of indie how is it doing health-wise you know going back to the mid-90s obviously like you just alluded to the championship kind of split into two completely separate leagues you had champ car you had irl the indie racing league which was principally oval and champ car was a blend of different uh racing types i was team champ car because the canadian events all stayed in champ car and it's funny, I actually remember in 2006 going to a Champ Car race in Edmonton, which was a phenomenal race with amazing atmosphere and a ton of fans. In 2008, I guess, was it 2008 that IRL basically absorbed the remnants of Champ Car? And they kept Indy on the calendar. So I went to the Edmonton event in 2000. Yeah, 
I went to the Edmonton event in 2009. So I went in 2006. It was a champ car race. I went in 2009. It was an indie or an IRL race, but it was a neat experience. But that aside, obviously you said, you know, it's been fractured. It's been broken apart. A lot of it's been self-inflicted business decisions that have been self-inflicted. Where is Indy now? Is it back to where it was in the early 90s when Nigel Mansell was there? Yeah, you get kind of, it's on the up and up where a lot of the animosities that had previously existed aren't there anymore. And you have a group of people who are actually trying to work together instead of a group of people who have very, very different conflicting ideas about what American open wheel should be. Uh, which is really nice because that has historically been the problem is that the issues were never resolved. I think we've finally reached a point where the baton has been passed, despite the fact that Roger Penske is in charge and he, Roger Penske was involved in all the other splits. It's fine. We're moving on. Um, I think it predominantly comes down to the fact that the drivers are largely one unit. Uh, they're all very friendly. Everyone gets along. Um, everyone's very nice to the media and to the fans. Um, I went to like nine IndyCar races in a summer one year and everyone in the paddock kind of like got to know who I was just because they saw me there and they made a point to reach out to say, hey, it's really cool to see a fan coming and like showing up regularly. Um, I think we're kind of getting to this point now where there's a lot more very dedicated fans and there's a lot of very interested people who are coming in, especially from Formula One where it's like, you want Formula One, but like with the drama that you get in Drive to Survive by happening on the track, that's kind of what IndyCar is. So if you like want the racing, that's where you go. Elizabeth, I want to change gears here and talk a little bit about an interview that you recently performed. Performed, I don't know if you perform an interview, you conducted an interview, but you alluded to it the last time you were on the show. And I don't think at that time we were in a position, yeah, you conducted an interview. I, I don't think we were in a position where we could reveal who that interviewee was, but it was Daniel Ricardo. It was for Race Weekend. And by the way, if you're interested in a subscription to Race Weekend magazine, you can get 10% off by using coupon code SCUDERIAPOD at checkout. But you had the opportunity to interview Daniel Ricardo. How was the interview? How did that come to be? And was he as personable and charismatic in person as he appears to be on TV? Uh, Daniel Ricardo is exactly as you would expect him to be on TV. Um, there's obviously like every driver has a little hesitance when you are talking to media, which is fine. I expect that. Um, but he's very friendly. He's very nice. Um, and I had the absolute pleasure of talking to him about formula one and specifically American culture, uh, which is something that he loves. So it was like a guaranteed hit with him. He was going to be as interested as possible. Uh, but basically our fearless leader, Magnus Greaves at the race weekend, wanted an interview for this edition and he knew he wanted it to be someone who had this tie to America and the very obvious person for that is Daniel Ricardo. Uh, so Magnus reached out to McLaren. They had this eternal back and forth where we thought it was going to happen, but we weren't sure. Uh, and it finally ended up coming to fruition in February of this year. Uh, and I was, I was stoked. Um, Daniel Ricardo was one of the main reasons why I started watching modern Formula One. Um, I got into F1 through Brush, so from the 1970s perspective, and I was like, eh, we'll see what this this new stuff's all about. Um, but his personality was really what brought me in, and that's what's kept me around for a lot of years. And it's, you know, I've always wanted to personally talk to him. 
Uh, so I had that opportunity and it was really, it was nice. He was a, he's a very nice boy. Um, had a lot of fun, talked a lot about music and, and NASCAR. So <laughs> it was nice. We certainly don't want to give away too much because we need our listeners collectively. We need them to all go out and subscribe to Race Weekend Magazine, $100 for four issues. It's a year-long subscription. The latest issue is the US edition. Again, go to theraceweekend.com. Use coupon code SkidariaPod at the checkout to save 10%. Okay, I think I've, I think I've reinforced that <laughs> enough. But this interview was fantastic. What were your biggest takeaways in terms of what he shared? Was there, was there a specific response? Was there something that he said that kind of resonated or stayed with you after the fact? I think in a large part, like I was just trying to like needle him to find out if he'd ever want to actually do a NASCAR race. Like that was just something I wanted to know for me. Um, and he was like, oh, I don't know if I'd want to like dive right in, but I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. Don't hold me to it. But like from his the answers I got, I think he's interested. So if he's got the right opportunity, that was that was my big takeaway. Um, other than that, I had a personal question to ask him because I was pretty sure we got a tattoo at the same place in Austin. And it turns out we did. And I've been waiting five years to find the answer to that. No so. way. Finally got the, the, the response. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I got, I got my, I got my rose tattoos in early October of 2015. Awesome. For, for an interview like that, how do you prepare? Do you do a lot of research? Do you play the interview kind of through your head? Do you role play with somebody else? Or do you take a more relaxed approach and think, you know, in my head, I've got to outline a structure of what I want to accomplish. And that's how I'm going to go. How did you prepare for this interview? I generally come in very relaxed and especially with someone like Daniel Ricardo, where he is a very relaxed person. It's also someone I know a lot about, so I don't have to do this like deep research that I might have to do for a different interview subject. Um, but for this one specifically, I was really interested, obviously, in America. Um, and I wanted to kind of get a broader perspective of like where he came into this as a child, what his perspectives were then, how this love of the country has kind of grown since then, and how it's evolved um, specifically within the context of motorsport now. Um, so having, I had, a, I had questions in mind. I, you know, gave a rough outline to Magnus. Um, he had some questions in mind that he wanted me to touch on. He sent them back with suggestions and I kind of crafted the list, uh, and go into it from there where, um, a lot of times half the script gets thrown out while you're in the middle of the interview because you found a totally different way to go. But I always like to come with some structure because I kind of, I know what I want the story to ultimately be about. So I want to kind of direct him to talk about the things that I want to touch on without, you know, telling him, please say exactly what I need you to say. But um, it worked out really nice. He was very friendly. He was very open, very charming. Um made it very easy for me. Was there was there anything that you didn't have the opportunity to ask him or anything that he tried to steer the conversation away or away from? Not really. Um he was pretty he was pretty open. Like I wasn't I don't want to say I wasn't asking hard questions, but I wasn't asking him like where are you going to be in 2024? Like where are you signing for the next year? Are you staying with McLaren? Um it wasn't anything like that. So I think he felt the ability to be a lot more open about it. Um, and Daniel Ricardo is very nice anyway. I have interviewed other Formula One drivers that give you very, very bad answers to every question. 
Um, and Daniel's never been like that, which is nice, but it was especially nice here where it was like, it's not anything about specifically what he's doing right now with his season and how he's preparing. It didn't matter. Like this was not what the conversation was. So I didn't get those like PR answers that you kind of hear a lot of like, I'm doing this for the team and I'm really looking forward to the first race of the season. So it, it was nice. I didn't have to deal with any of the nonsense. Oh, in Canada, we call that hockey talk. And it's that that token NHL response, NHL player response. <laughs> like, yeah, we're yeah. in it for the team. Yeah. Like, every goal matters. Like, that kind of stuff. But that that's awesome that he could be a little bit more authentic and personable with you. And, and a funny kind of personal story. I remember years ago, my wife and I were watching the Monaco Grand Prix. And it was the race where he came to pit and the team – he was with Red Bull. But he came to pit and the team didn't have his tires ready. And – Post-race, he was obviously very upset because he was cost a potential race week win, and he was really upset. And for whatever reason, I hadn't paid a lot of attention to Daniel Ricciardo to that point, and I just slight in front of my wife, I just slandered him. And she is actually a much bigger F1 fan than I could ever imagine being, and she cleaned me up. She's like, he deserves to be that angry. He's the nicest guy in F1. They like so I was like, I kind of had my tail between my legs for a couple of days, but I had a much better appreciation for him after that because. She's absolutely right. And I think if you dive back into the first season of Drive to Survive, when they go out to his family home in in Perth in Western Australia, you see how down to earth the family is. You see how middle class they are. And when he did that interview a couple of years ago with uh, Beyond the Grid, he talked about the fact that there was a point where his dad had to have a serious conversation with him. Like, if you're not going to be serious about this, we can't afford to keep putting you into karting. So I'm super happy that you of all people had the opportunity to interview him, especially for race weekend, which is as a kind of up and coming uh, publication, that's that's a big sign of credibility to land an interview like that. Yes, it was very nice. It felt it was nice to do for the race weekend. Elizabeth, with that, we're going to take another quick break. And when we get back, we're going to jump into the Formula One news. So we're going to pay a couple bills. Everyone hang tight. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and joining me today, my co-host, Elizabeth Blackstock. We have been covering the Miami Grand Prix, her experiences at Indy, and the fact that she recently had the opportunity to sit down and interview Daniel Ricciardo, arguably the most popular Formula One driver in the United States. And as per her scoop, maybe 
in the future a NASCAR driver. So we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. And we will be touching on a couple of Daniel Ricciardo stories a little bit later on. Now, before we jump into the news, a couple of quick laundry items. Uh, if you didn't see it, listeners at home, you know I'm a huge NBA fan. And of course, I was incredibly excited to see LeBron James chumming it up with Lewis Hamilton in Monaco post-race. Quick birthday shout out, 23rd birthday to the young Sauber, I keep always saying Sauber, but the young Alfa Romeo rookie, Zhu, he celebrated his 23rd birthday this week. Congratulations to Valtteri Bottas and all of Finland for winning the World Ice Hockey Championships. A neat stat that I pulled off of Reddit, shout out to Mr. Flow, and this stat is, when Fernando Alonso starts the Azerbaijan Grand Prix in Baku next week, he will hold the record of the driver with the longest time between his first and final race at 7,770 days. His first race in Formula One was in Australia, March 4th, 2001. The current record is Michael Schumacher, and his streak was 7,763 days, starting in Belgium in 1991 on August 21st, concluding his career on November 21st in Brazil in 2025. And then the only other interesting note, and I didn't even pick up on this, Elizabeth, I'm sure you did, but a Honda-powered car last weekend won both the Indy 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix. It did. It did. I was hoping for a Chevrolet win at Indy, but that's okay. <laughs> were, was that because of a specific passion for the brand or because you were rooting for a specific driver in a Chevy-powered car? Uh, I, I drive a Chevrolet, <laughs> so I'm biased. <laughs> Good enough. Good enough. And we drive a Volkswagen and I'm especially biased that Audi or Porsche make their way into Formula One. All right. So the first news story of the day, and this comes from Formula One.com. The FIA has announced the departure of Peter Bayer, who has served as secret or secretary general of the sport since 2017 and as F1 executive director since 2021. He will initially be replaced and Apologies if I get the pronunciation wrong, but he will initially be replaced by Shayla and Rao, formerly the Mercedes team principal, Total Wolf's special advisor. As well as fulfilling his role as F1 executive director, Bayer headed the FIA sports division, facilitating the current single-seater structure, creating the World Rally Raid Championship, and working on safety and sustainability. In a statement, the FIA says, the FIA warmly thanks Peter for the achievements he has contributed to the development of motorsport over the last five years. The FIA wishes him all the best in the future. Now, Elizabeth, obviously at the end of last year, Jean Todd's reign atop the FIA superstructure came to an end. Ben Salem came in to replace him. He's the new president of the FAA. But the FIA this year, despite the fact that they've introduced a couple of new race directors, their stewarding appears to have improved, the FIA continues to come under fire for some of the decisions that they've made so far this year, not least of which, of course, was pursuing pursuing seemingly Lewis Hamilton over the jewelry ban and a number of other things. There seems to be this ongoing rift. And of course, that doesn't even speak to the fact that I think a lot of people within Formula One, within the Liberty Group, were really upset with the FIA for not immediately embracing the idea of having six sprint race weekends next year. There was this perception or this reported greed on the behalf of the FIA. Is this move just business as usual at the FIA? Or does this speak to perhaps a desire from Liberty or the FIA to continue overhauling the stakeholders within that organization that help manage the Formula One business. See, that's that's the interesting thing is that they're 
a lot of people are pointing to Charlotte Ann Rao's past um, within Mercedes as some sort of signifier that perhaps this is a turning point for how we, you know, for how the stewardship is going to be taking place and how the direction will be taking place. Um, But at the same time, the Formula One and FIA executive committee is very, very small. Um, That whole community is a pretty pretty tiny group of people that are generally doing the same jobs kind of circulating around and the FIA and Ferrari have historically kind of been the same organization. Um, so I'm uncle- I'm unsure. I'm unsure if this signals a direction. I kind of, I want to think that it will because I think some of the recent pushes, especially with the jewelry situation, um, have been a little bit silly. So it'd be nice to have someone who's a little more level-headed or at least will be willing to steer the conversation in a much nicer more productive direction. A lot of the criticism of the FIA last year was related to the the officiating of the sport on the track. You know, for the first half of the year, we heard endlessly about track limits and we heard endlessly about the inconsistencies with calling overtakes on the inside of a corner, on the outside of the corner. It wasn't clear to anyone within the sport what the actual rules were. And then, of course, it kind of came to a head in Abu Dhabi when we had that horrendous outcome to a championship. And again, all the credibility to Max Verstappen. He is a deserving champion, not taking anything away from him or Red Bull. Do you think the FIA has made any strides this year? Is the on-track officiating getting better? Have you got any love for the race directors? Are they doing a better job than what we saw last year? There's, the optimist in me says that I think there there's been a little bit better officiating but that's largely because they placed a lot of the situation away from themselves so they've put the the onus on the teams and the drivers to decide specifically with on-track maneuvers if they need to give those places back that doesn't signal to me better direction from the FIA as a whole that just says we don't want to have to deal with the the back and forth on this so you have to you have to deal with it now so i'm I'm not sure. Like, I kind of hope this this move gets us some clear rules and some better direction um, for what the the rules should be, so that there is an expectation that's set that you can follow and that you know when you're clearly breaking a rule, as opposed to hoping someone interprets the rule the same way you did, or else you'll be screwed. Um, so, I I hope it's I hope it's a better a better direction, but. It's so hard to tell. You can never tell until they get going. Definitely. And I I mean, I think ultimately the fact that Michael Massey is no longer a race director is an acknowledgement that obviously the outcome in Abu Dhabi last year wasn't ideal. I I would still argue, and I totally agree, that I feel like they're they're deferring some responsibility by leaving certain situations up to the driver on the track, which I think is absurd, especially when you have four stewards. But I still have of the mind that you can't you can't call Formula One the pinnacle of global motorsports, have four stewards at every race, and two of them be effectively unpaid volunteers that just get nominated for that role that aren't part of a full-time professional roster. I think I still think there's a little bit maybe not even a little bit, but a lot of work that can be done to tidy up and improve the consistency. Because you're right, the way something is called at one race could be called completely different at another because your stewards could be completely different. In fact, you could have a different race director. So they are setting up the sport for this lack of consistency still, despite all the things that they've done in the last six months. Yeah. And that's not the thing you want people talking about at the end of the race. Definitely not. Moving on to the next story. 
And this is something that probably makes a lot of sense in hindsight. But if you're like me, you're probably left a little bit confused as to why we didn't have a standing start in Monaco. The weather wasn't ideal, but a lot of the drivers after the race indicated as much that they expected or expected that there should have been a standing start. But furthermore, after the red flag that was brought out by that really ugly Mick Schumacher crash, we once again had a rolling start. Now, Autosport.com is reporting that a power outage on the F1 grid contributed to the Monaco GP delays and prevented the standing restarts. And I quote here, rain in the build up to the planned start time of 3 p.m. for the Monaco Grand Prix led to the start procedure being suspended just minutes away from the intended start. The formation lap was initially rescheduled for 3.09, but the start was then delayed by the FIA to 3.16, beginning the race behind the safety car. After completing two laps behind the safety car, heavy rain then led to the race being red flag. The initial decisions to delay the race to 3.16 stemmed from the FIA wanting to give the team's Apple opportunity to change to wet weather tires that is as anticipated heavy rain then when the cars were lined up in the pit lane under the red flag that followed a power outage caused the starting systems to fail and contributed to the wait of nearly 45 minutes before the first rolling restart was attempted so Elizabeth, power outages happen. I think we all get that. Logistical challenges, technical challenges. But for me, maybe the most surprising thing was that as a viewer at home, I had no idea this was happening. Did you know? And what were your thoughts if you didn't when you finally did realize that there were some technical issues that were preventing the operation of the lights? I didn't hear it on the broadcast. I heard it on Twitter. Uh, so I, when this article came out, I wasn't like shocked, but I think it, when I'm, you know, in retrospect to look back at what I was hearing was not anything about this. I had literally no clue based on what I was listening to and what I was watching that this had gone on, that there was a power outage, um, which seems absolutely silly. Like, I feel like you should have generators, but I feel like Formula One has reached that point where, you know, they should have a backup plan. But again, I don't know. Formula One does its own thing. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Like the broadcast didn't mention it. And I had no idea that that's actually what had happened until I think it, it, a journalist, I can't remember who it was, um, tweeted that they had lost power. Um, and that was that was where I heard. But yeah, I had no idea that that actually had affected the decisions by the stewards to red flag or choose to go for the rolling restarts. You know, I think now that you speak to that point, I think I was probably being a little bit generous that you're right, that absolutely this is Formula One and you have a global audience of hundreds of millions of people. How could you not have a backup power source for the grid lights? It's absolutely, absolutely crazy. Next story up in our queue today is Max Verstappen's father, Formula, former Formula One driver Jos Verstappen, has blasted, according to Nate Saunders at ESPN, has blasted Red Bull's race strategy at the Monaco Grand Prix. And I quote, Red Bull achieved a good result, but at the same time exerted little influence to help Max to the front, he wrote in a blog post, according to MaxForstappen.com, that he finished third, he owes to Ferrari's mistake at that second stop of Charles Leclerc. The championship leader, Max, was not helped in that sense by the team's chosen strategy. It turned completely to Perez's favor. That was disappointing to me, and I would have liked it to be different for the championship leader. He added, I think 10 points from Max have been thrown away 
away here, especially with the two retirements that we've had earlier in the season. We need every point. Don't forget that Ferrari currently has a better car, especially in qualifying. What is your reaction to Jos Verstappen's comments about the fact that his son, Max Verstappen, was robbed potentially of a race win by the strategy deployed by Red Bull Racing in Monaco? From a very general perspective, I think Jos Verstappen has a lot of bad takes all the time. <laughs> um, but this one is particularly <laughs> this is particularly spicy, um, especially because Max was not the Red Bull cars were not in a one-two position or in a position of you know back and forth, especially when these like how do you how do you give an order or create a situation where Max would have had a chance to go into the lead by passing multiple cars in the process to reach his teammate. It just seems very silly and it feels like a very far reach, um, especially when you have so many mitigating factors like weather uh, and you have now different pit stops than you kind of would have intended. I think Red Bull obviously is pushing for Max Verstappen as world champion. I think Sergio Perez is a very comfortable number two and I think Perez is aware of that. Um, but it, it just, it seems ridiculous that having this result, um, a t you know, not even a bad one, still got plenty of points, still adding to the championship should be such an issue for Jos Verstappen. Your son doesn't have to win every race and it, you know, your teammate won. Like Red Bull still did good. That's, that's a nice that's a nice thing. Like we should be happy about that. And it actually segues perfectly into our next story, which is Sergio Perez, the winner of the Monaco Grand Prix and now the winningest Mexican Formula One driver of all time, has signed a two-year extension with Red Bull that is reportedly worth $10 million a year. Says Sergio Perez, and this is being quoted out of autosport.com, for me, this has been an incredible week. Winning the Monaco Grand Prix is a dream for any driver. And then to follow that up with an announcement that I will be continuing with the team until 2024 just makes me extremely happy, Perez says. I am so proud to be a member of this team and I feel completely at home here now. We are working very well together and my relationship with Max on and off the track is definitely helping us drive this team forward even more. So last week, he wins the Monaco Grand Prix, becomes the winningest Mexican driver of all time, and secures a two-year deal worth $20 million. Is this a good deal for Sergio? Is this a good deal for Red Bull? And then what is the impact to the rest of the driver market heading into the silly season in about four or five months? I think the very interesting thing is that there's such a hierarchy in Formula One that Perez knows he has the second best seat in the house uh, at the moment and has to kind of consign himself to being that second best seat, um, which is like, it's it's a very strange position of like, this is the best you can possibly get, but you know that your teammate is probably going to be prioritized, um, especially with Max being such a longstanding Red Bull junior driver, um, which it's just kind of fascinating where it doesn't necessarily count Perez out in terms of winning a championship. There was still, you know, Lewis Hamilton was the very obvious number one driver for Mercedes for several years. And Nico Rosberg still was competitive and still took a championship during that time. Uh, and that didn't stop Lewis from continuing to be dominant well after that. So I think it's really interesting. I think it's an interesting move for Perez. I think psychologically and like within the scope of what Formula One is, 
uh, it's very, it's, it's just a weird place to be where, you know, this is the best you can get, but you're like, not the number one. Um, and it's, it's interesting, especially when you consider now the junior market where this is now effectively a seat that's closed off for another driver who is up and coming in the ranks. Um, and the Red Bull junior program has come under a lot of fire in the past few years for effectively signing a lot of drivers and then doing nothing with them. Um, filtering them out out of open wheel racing into other forms of motorsport or bringing them into Formula One either too early or placing too many expectations on them and then cutting them from that program. So it's really, it's fascinating to see that this is the way that this has gone. It's kind of unfortunate for a lot of those younger drivers who I think were hoping for Perez's seat and then for the AlphaTauri drivers who are probably hoping to have a quick opportunity to move up uh, on the ladder. But we'll have to see. We'll have to see how it turns out. I think I think Pears is a good call for the team. Um, I don't think it was a bad a bad call in the slightest. I think he's a very reliable points getter. Um, he's going to be a reliable winner. But he, I don't think Pears is going to be the kind of person who pushes Verstappen out of the way intentionally just to get a win. Um, I think he will defer to his teammate. So it's a good place for the team to be in. Yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like it gives Red Bull the opportunity to continue manufacturing. I I shouldn't say manufacturing because that's a disservice to what you do in Formula One. But in a sense, sometimes you have to manufacture a championship for your driver. That's through things like team orders and, and race strategy. But I think you're right that he's consistent and he knows the car. And if you were to swap him out, you risk bringing somebody into the team that for a year has to adjust to this car. And we've seen this with certain drivers like Daniel Ricciardo really struggled to adjust to that McLaren, which we'll talk to in a couple of minutes, but we've seen it in other places on the grid as well. And Sergio now knows the car. He's familiar with the power unit. He knows when and where to downshift, where his braking marker should be. He's really comfortable in this car. And I argued last year that the fact that they didn't win the Constructors Championship was probably probably at least in part his responsibility. And I think they probably weren't willing to commit to him long-term or with a multi-year deal coming out of last year. And they wanted to see more from him. But what we've seen this year with the exception of the reliability issues linked to the fuel cell in Bahrain has been some really great drives. He hasn't finished out of the top four in any of the races that he's finished. And he's accumulating enough points to help ensure that this team has a real shot at the constructor's title. I feel like it's a really good call for him. And I think you're right that he's not going to do anything necessarily to unsettle this team when it makes its very blatant and obvious bid to win Max his second consecutive world championship. So a good deal. But you also touched on something else, which is this signing seals off a seat that could have been available to somebody else. And I don't doubt that had they not signed him, that Sergio would have found a ride somewhere else. But you have young Pierre Gasly, who at least last year and the year before performed exceptionally well in that Alpha Tauri, who's now looking at this as a Red Bull driver thinking, what's the point? What is my future if I'm not even going to get a sniff of that seat until 2025? And do I want to wait? What do you think the future has in store for young Pierre Gasly? I honestly didn't believe that Pierre Gasly would be the one moving up anyway. Um, Unfortunately, I think that's kind of the hand that Red Bull has dealt him of giving him things and then taking them away again um, and expecting too much too soon. Uh, which tends to be Red Bull's issue with any of their junior drivers. They've had this problem for several years where they expect, you know, everyone to kind of be a Max Verstappen prodigy when 
that's not the the norm. That is the exception. Um, so I didn't think that Pierre was going to be that driver anyway, which is unfortunate because I really would like him to be that driver. But I also don't think Yuki Sonoda is ready to be that driver of the, you know, the second Red Bull seat. And I think especially when you're talking about these younger drivers, the ones who have something to prove, um, they are going to be the driver who competes with Max Verstappen because they want to be the driver that beats Max Verstappen. Whereas you've got Sergio Perez on a totally different track of life. He's nearing kind of the end of his Formula One career as he's gotten older. He's he's not going to be pushing the the same way. He doesn't have to prove himself for the rest, you know, the next 10 years. We already know he's a good driver. We know he's solid. All he has to do now is help Red Bull win some championships. He's either going to continue with the team or he's going to move on somewhere else where he's happier. You know, for him, this is a great situation. For someone like Yuki Tsunoda, it probably would have backfired and he probably would have lost that seat very quickly. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's what we've seen recently with that team is oftentimes they'll promote somebody into that seat at Red Bull. It doesn't work out and they're pulled out of it as quickly as they were delivered that gift. And, you know, we could talk about that with Daniel Kvyat if we want to go back five or six years ago. Obviously, we saw it with Alex Albon, although he got a year and a half before he unceremoniously lost it. And of course, Pierre Gasly ultimately got half a season before he lost it mid-season, despite assurances from Helmut Marko and Christian Horner that that wasn't going to happen. Now, having said that, if you could look into your crystal ball and you look around the landscape of Formula One, can you see potentially a landing spot for Pierre Gasly? Or do you think that maybe there's a, a long-term relationship with Alpha Tauri in the play? I can see him staying with Alpha Tauri, unfortunately. Like, I would love for Pierre Gasly to go somewhere else. I think he's a great driver and I think he has a lot of experience especially within formula one that would make him a desirable asset but it's really difficult to see a spot that would be open for him that would be a step up from alpha tauri um ferrari seems pretty happy where they're at mercedes seems pretty happy where they're at you got red bull that is obviously stuck here mclaren is now kind of a hit or miss team um and mclaren has their eye on a lot of other younger drivers from other disciplines that they want to bring into the sport you know, it's really, it's difficult. Um, I think that's where a lot of the issues with Formula One comes in is that there's so much potential that we never actually get to see hit the track because everyone has a pipeline of young drivers and they don't kind of, they don't really want to pull out from someone else's pipeline when they've got this in, this monetary and financial, this long-term investment that they've committed to someone in their, their junior program. You know, they, it, it's not like, you know, they owe them anything, but like at this point, you kind of got to do something with them. Like you don't just want to invest millions of dollars in their Formula 3 program and then just like not do anything. So it's it's so hard. Like that's it. That's kind of one of the things that's frustrating about Formula 1. Like there's no, it's so hard to kind of like cross contaminate between teams. Um, and it makes it so difficult where you see so many great drivers who just like don't have anywhere to go. And I think that's kind of where Pierre is at, unfortunately. He's at this point where he's not old, but he's older. You know, he's kind of in that midpoint of his career where he hopefully he would have done something already, but he hasn't done it yet because he didn't have the chance to do it because Red Bull didn't have the spot for him to do that in. So it's it's really difficult. It's frustrating. Like I think Pierre Gasly could do great things as a top you know, in a top tier team. He's obviously done them with Alpha Tauri. 
Uh, but I just don't think we're going to get a chance to see it. You're right. If you look around, you look around the paddock, where would that opportunity come from? It, to your point, it's not going to be Mercedes. It's not going to be Ferrari. It's definitely not going to be Red Bull. And then if you look at the rest of the teams on the grid, are any of them any better position to enable him to win a Grand Prix than the team he's currently with and a team he's comfortable with? He's comfortable with his engineer, his mechanics. He knows the car. He knows the power unit. Maybe there isn't a better situation for him. And to be fair, he won a race in that car two years ago. So we know it's a capable platform and it's a great power unit. It powered Max Verstappen to a world championship last year. But I think just in terms of kind of the juiciness and the fun of talking about Formula One, we like to talk about young drivers getting an opportunity with a big team. And unfortunately for Pierre, I just, I can't figure out what that opportunity is going to be. And maybe a seat opens up at Aston Martin, but is that a lateral move? Is that a downgrade? And ultimately he might just be best off where he is if he can secure a two or three year deal. Next story. And I hesitate. We almost have an unofficial policy on the show that we don't talk about Bernie Eccleston or give him any airtime whatsoever. I'm strongly of the mind that if he'd stayed around in Formula One for a couple more years and had been there when Drive to Survive had happened. And again, he would never have been... He would never have had the self-awareness to understand that Drive to Survive was a good thing, so it probably wouldn't have happened. But in a lot of ways, to me, he's kind of the Donald Sterling of Formula One. He is the March shot of Formula One. But he says, and I, I hesitate to say this on the air as well, and I quote, that Formula One bosses do not have the quote-unquote balls to drop Monaco, says Bernie Eccleston, who is always happy to fire off some quotes to routers. He says, I don't think anyone's got the balls to take that race away from Monaco. Whether it's the worst race or the best race or whatever, it is the crown jewel of Formula One. Elizabeth, it's 2022. People have social media. They can share their opinions of the sport. They've got the F1 TV Pro app. They can watch Indy. They can watch Formula Formula E. There's tons of Formula or of open wheel racing and tons of opportunity for people to conversate and analyze the quality of racing at different venues. Is Monaco the crown jewel of Formula One? Does Formula One need this race? See, here's here's where the thing is. Like, I have this hot take that we should not have Monaco as part of the Formula One calendar anymore. Not that we should get rid of it entirely. I think it should be an exhibition race where you can do something interesting instead where you put the young drivers in, you bring people from other disciplines out, you you know, give other drivers a chance to get behind the wheels so it like spices things up in a way that you wouldn't normally have. But, you know, it's so difficult because Monaco has history and it has the prestige. And this is a race that people will pay a lot of money to go to. And that's part of why we have it. Um, I don't think it's necessarily great racing in terms of modern Formula One. You, you, it's it's just not like unless there's rain, it's pretty much a procession, and you can kind of tell who's going to win based on who comes across the first lap in what place. Um, I don't. <laughs> this is the thing is like I hate that I agree with Bernie <laughs> on this. I don't think they'll be anyone wants to get rid of it because they don't want to be that guy. And I don't want to like I don't want to be the person who agrees with Bernie, but unfortunately, like I think that's that's the thing, and that's why I've always like I've recently kind of come around to this like do something different with it, exhibition race, like keep it the same weekend, keep it part of Formula One, but you know the history of Formula One is packed with races that were not championship point scoring events. 
you just went to these races to compete for prize money. This is something that we could bring back with Monaco. It would still have that same prestige. It would bring it to this... It would make it kind of a crown jewel in the sense that it is no longer just a race. Um, it is something different, something separate, and it's something that is desirable and you want to compete in. Uh, and there are ways to make it that interesting that don't have to be, you know, manufactured entertainment, but also don't have to just be the same old boring stuff we've seen. I'm torn. I hate that I agreed with Bernie, but you know, <laughs> I, I don't think there's going to be any way to get rid of it in terms of like completely nixing it. But I think there is a way to get a happy middle ground here where, you know, you can still see Formula One cars at Monaco. People will still spend a lot of money to be there and it will still be a very desirable race to win without it having to be a necessary part That's of the championship. That's a good point, right? And, and the question is, are the people that are attending this race, because it's not you, it's not me, and it's probably somebody that's not getting up at six in the morning to watch a race in April. You know what I mean? Like, do they care if it's a championship race? Do they care if it's a bunch of rookies piloting these tr cars around the track in a non-points race? Or do they even care? And again, I'm not going to take credit for this, but one of my F1 besties messaged me this suggestion the other day, which is why not put all of the F1 drivers in spec series cars and let them race each other? And again, I don't think any Formula One driver, especially on a top team, is going to sign up for that. But what a sensational spectacle that would be. Put the rookies in the F1 cars and then put the F1 drivers in the spec series cars because there would be a lot of pride on the line. But I think you're right that ultimately it's probably not going to go anywhere. And I think a lot of the negativity and the criticism of the race is actually being fueled by Liberty themselves because they're looking for leverage to renegotiate this deal with Monaco. We know Monaco has paid little or nothing into the coffers of Formula One. Liberty is all about delivering value to its shareholders, its investors, its owners. And you can't do that when Monaco gets a free ride. So this is a great opportunity for them to go back and renegotiate A, the fee they pay for this race, but maybe also negotiate for some changes to the track. And I don't know how much flexibility there is to do that, but it's 2022 and they got to be able to figure something out because these 20, these 2022 red cars just aren't compatible with that track. And when people criticize Monaco for being a procession, you know, it is an outside of qualifying. It's a pretty dull weekend. And I get this year was eventful, but it was eventful because there was a red flag and because the track was wet in a dry race. It's not doesn't make for great racing and we shouldn't also have to depend on safety cars and red flags to inject a little bit of excitement into the race itself now elizabeth we talked a little bit about daniel ricardo earlier in this podcast and again another person that i don't like to give a lot of airtime to or even quote on this show is jack villeneuve of course the 1997 champion the 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 son of gilles and of course the only canadian formula one champion he says that Ricardo's time in Formula One is coming to a close. And I quote, and this is from Formula E or Formula One.nl, Daniel Ricardo's time at McLaren is over. Says Jacques Villeneuve, CEO Zach Brown is now saying that there are clauses in his contract, and that means that his decision has almost been made. It's a way to put the pressure on the driver and prepare the media. Ultimately, Daniel has been a highly paid driver who has cost the team a lot of money. He doesn't bring in any points, and he doesn't have the speed the team needs to develop the car, so he's just costing the money. Continues Jacques, it would be cheaper for them to continue paying his salary, let him sit on the couch at home, and put another driver in the car. It's a harsh reality, 
but that's Formula One. So talk about hot takes. We both know, and I think we would both agree, last year was a challenging year for Daniel Ricciardo. This year, shifting to the new regulations has been equally challenging, and he's been consistently outperformed by his teammate Lando. What needs to happen for Daniel Ricciardo to to recover his lost pace? Because he's one of the most likable characters in Formula One, and I don't think anybody is enjoying seeing him struggle the way that he has. I, When I was in Miami, I talked to some folks, and I will not say who, uh, but they basically said that McLaren is very unimpressed with the way that Daniel Ricciardo prioritizes his off-track life versus his on-track life. so that, I believe, is the current issue, aside from everything that's going on, that they they feel that Daniel Ricciardo is not putting in this time or effort to learning the car, to developing the car, to spending time in the simulator. I can't verify whether or not that's true. I'm not on the McLaren team, so I don't know how much time Daniel puts in, you know, compared to Lando Norris or how this car was developed or what input he gave. Um, but that's that's something that I've heard. So when I saw Jacques Villeneuve's quotes, I wasn't totally shocked um, because I'd heard this already. And I hate that we're at this point because I do agree. I think Daniel Ricciardo is an asset in terms of personality. Um, but when you get to that point, the harsh reality of Formula One is that there are contract clauses about performance where if a team is not pleased with how you're doing, they can go ahead and cut you mid-season. They can pay you a sum of money. Again, the contracts in Formula One are extremely a well-kept secret. So I don't, I can't confirm or deny that there's a performance contract clause within this whole situation. But Zach Brown is alluding to it. And Zach Brown knows how to work the media and I think that's kind of what he's hinting at. And I hate, again, I hate that I agree with Jacques Villeneuve. Um, is not anyone that I like want to share an opinion with, but I think we are facing this very harsh reality that Daniel Ricciardo will not, ex- you know, he's not going to be here for 2023 and he has a contract through the end of 2023. And that's, that's just like kind of where we're at. And it sucks to be facing that perspective, but we're kind of there says zach brown lando definitely has an edge obviously we would like to see daniel much closer to lando and have a good intra-team battle daniel is just not comfortable yet with the car we are trying everything again or everything we can again it was a disappointing weekend short of monza in a few races it's generally he's generally not met his or our expectations. And you're right. Absolutely. He is under contract till the end of 2023. It's now being reported by the race.com that it's actually Daniel that has a driver option for 2023, not the team. But you and I both know Formula One, Elizabeth. There's no collective bargaining agreement here. These contracts aren't necessarily worth the paper that they're written on. And the team can either tear them up, buy out the driver, or just pay them to sit home. And, you know, I was talking with Tim Haraney on his podcast a couple of days about Sergio Perez. He signed a three-year contract extension midway through 2019 that would have kept him in that team for 20, 21, and 22. And it was only halfway through the first season of that deal that rumors were running rampant that he was going to be gone by the end of 2020. And he was replaced by Sebastian Vettel. And that wasn't even predicated by his performance. It was more by Lawrence Stroll's desire to have a champion in that seat, in that car to help develop the car and bring Lance along. In this case, 
the conversation's really about Daniel's performance. And what you said right now is really interesting in that maybe part of this is his on-track performance, but also frustrations from the team about, and I hesitate to use this word, but maybe his commitment to bettering himself and spending time in the garage with the engineers and the mechanics improving that car. And, you know, midway through last year, there was a quote that came out from Daniel at Monaco where he was saying, look, you know what? I'm frustrated because I look at Lando's telemetry and I can't, I can't do what he's doing with the car. I can't carry as much speed in the corner. I can't break as late as he is, but it looks like the challenges that he was having last year with the car have continued over this year. And this year was a bit of a blank slate that look, put aside all the issues you're having with the 2021 car that is done. We have a new car. It's a new book. It's a blank page. The only thing we're going to carry over is the power unit. But he's having the same problems this year that he did last year. So I think what you just indicated a couple of minutes ago could be the startling realization that like Jack says, and I also equally as much don't like agreeing with Jack, that maybe what Zach is doing is preparing the media for the inevitable, which is maybe Daniel's not back with this team next year. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Final story of the night, and we're going to move over to Two Wheels. And reported now is that Mark Marquez's season in MotoGP has come to a sudden stop. And if you follow MotoGP, and I'm a big fan, Mark Marquez has absolutely dominated the championship for the better part of the last 10 years. Unfortunately, an injury that really began with a bad crash in 2020 is going to require additional surgery. So for those of you that don't know, Mark Marquez has been an absolute rock star in the world of MotoGP. He entered the championship in 2013. He won the championship that year. He won again in 2014. He won the championship in 16, 17, 18, and 19. In 2016, he beat my favorite driver, favorite driver, my favorite rider of all time, Valentino Rossi, who finished second in the championship. But early in 2020, he had a horrible crash and broke his arm. He 
had surgery, arguably came back too early in 2021, struggled throughout the season, had to have surgery again, and then he's been determined once again that he's going to need surgery on that arm. Mark Marquez has indicated that he is at the point now that without surgery, his career could possibly come to a very, very rapid close. And this is incredibly disappointing because this was a rider who just a couple of years ago looked poised to become the winningest rider of all time, at least in terms of accumulating championships and potentially race wins in MotoGP. And suddenly it seems like his career could be coming to a very, very rapid close. Elizabeth, I don't know if you follow MotoGP, but this is a deeply unsettling reality for fans of that championship. Yeah, I'm not a a super close follower of MotoGP, but like I follow enough to be aware of the fact that Marc Marquez is an icon of our time and that he is a rider that you know, beyond anyone else has done incredible things and like I'd gone to the MotoGP events that they've had at Coda and I can't remember what year it was. I can't even really remember the context. But I remember when you're in qualifying, something happened where like halfway through qualifying, he couldn't continue on the bike he had. So he like ran down the pit lane and jumped on another one and proceeded to set the pull speed. Like it was, even as someone who's not a close follower of MotoGP, like there's, I have so much respect for him. And it's this very, you said the word unsettling. And I think that's kind of the best word for it, that, He's gone through multiple surgeries. He's gone through recovery, but it hasn't been enough. And it's he's been pushing himself to get back on the bike a little bit too quickly. And I think that's one of the very the different things from open wheel racing or stock car racing, or, you know, four wheel racing generally. And when you get on two wheels, your body's so very exposed that when these things happen, you are more susceptible to these injuries that just don't that either don't go away or that are very difficult to heal in the context of your, what you're doing. Um, and it, it like, it's, it just sucks. Like I, I hate to see it because I like, I even as just a very like kind of bird's eye view follower of MotoGP, it was always so exciting to see someone setting records. Like it's so cool to be alive in an era where the fastest, you know, Indy 500, qualifying speed is set like to see that and see you know be alive as that happens it's incredible and to see that with Mark Marquez where now we have this realization that like this might not happen like he might not become this you know he's already an icon but to not become this unstoppable force that we thought is very I I don't like it I'm not a fan I don't I feel very bad and I hope that this one is the one that you know sets things right and that he's able to recover properly and then to be able to get back on the bike because I'd read that like he wasn't even able to train because he was in so much pain after a race that he just needed to like lay down when he got home like that's that's awful to hear from an athlete at their prime you know we we talk a lot about how physically demanding all kind of disciplines are when you talk about open wheel racing Indy and Formula One and Formula E it's something that I don't think most of us could ever do. And people actually ask me all the time. They ask like, hey, Mark, if I jumped in a Formula One car, how fast do you think my lap time would be? I'm like, you would never finish a lap. You probably wouldn't even get to the first corner because you, you wouldn't be skilled enough to get heat into the tires. And because you can't get heat in the tires, you can't get heat into the brakes. Like you probably would never finish a lap, let alone set a good lap time. 
MotoGP is physical in an entirely different way because the position of the bike and turning that bike is entirely indicative of your ability to swing your body over the side at incredibly high speeds. Like so much of the bike and the turn in and, and the stability is based on the placement of your body. Now I, I'm reading here from crash.net Marquez, who's under contract with Honda Repsol Honda until the end of 2024 revealed that without the operation, he would be unlikely to remain in MotoGP on beyond that date. It says Mark Marquez, my daily life is affected a lot at the moment. Before I was always training, training, training a lot at home, training with motorbikes, training with motocross, training with road bikes, any kind of bikes. But now my normal life is this. I come back from a race, stay at home for two to three days, just relaxing because I cannot physically do anything. I do a little bit of leg, light leg work. I do a little bit of cycling and then start to train again. Physio, physio painkillers. I said to my doctors and my people riding like this, I will do one more year, two more years, no more because I'm not enjoying this and I'm suffering a lot. But having this operation, I hope my life will change because the last two years were not easy. Marquez continues that Honda fully supports his decision. I feel really big respect from Honda to myself. I said to them, the situation is this, and they fully supported me. So again, it's really sad news. This is a kid that burst into MotoGP. He's got a younger brother who's also very competitive on two wheels. He won an absolute slew of titles, having to beat out Valentino Rossi, the overwhelming favorite in 2016 to do so. Uh, again, it's incredibly unfortunate. And I think for both you and me, fingers crossed that he's going to be able to make a remarkable recovery. And this time, take the time he needs to heal and not rush back on to that bike. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining the show tonight. You have been a fantastic co-host. I, I want to make sure we give you the opportunity, let everyone know at home where they can follow you, where they can find your work and what you're up to. And then finally, I am dying personally for an update on the book. Well, I will start with the book update because I just got some news today, which is that we will be proofing it soon, which means hopefully we will have a timeline next month, the month after <laughs> in terms of publication. Um, so we're, we're at the point where it's being laid out, it's being formatted, and then we will be able to look at it as a beautiful book uh, with beautiful pages. And, you know, we'll do all of our tedious indexing to make sure that everything is easily navigable. Uh, but we're getting there. Still, it's still aiming to come out probably October of this year, hopefully to coincide with the U.S. Grand Prix. Uh, there haven't been any changes on that front, thankfully. Uh, in terms of me, you can follow me on Twitter at Eliz, E-L-I-Z, underscore Blackstock. Uh, I'm on Jolovnik, Elizabeth Blackstock. You can find me on Instagram, Eliz A. Blackstock. I mostly just post pictures of my cats, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, it was it was great to be here. It was fun to to be a regular host. I love it. You were fantastic. I, I may have to delay uh, Mr. Daly's arrival back home. Uh, he's <laughs> on a little bit of a business trip. So I, it was just at the beginning. He did not get a one podcast banned by the FIA. But uh, yeah, maybe we can do this again sometime. Yeah, I would love to. I'd have so much fun. If you have the opportunity listening at home, if you can give us a review, a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you know that means the world to us. You can follow us on Twitter at Skidaria F1 Pod. You can find us on Instagram, apparently at Skidaria F1 Pod. And you can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at 
mark in Van City. We've got a race weekend off. Next weekend, we are off to Baku. And then for the first time in three years, the following weekend, we are back in Canada. Young Lance Stroll and young Nicholas Latifi get their first taste of, I guess Lance has been there a couple of times, but Nicholas Latifi gets his first taste. With that, everybody, thanks so much for joining us. We'll speak to everybody soon. Once again, thanks for joining us. Bye. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song, and my songs gon' break through like a running back.